Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the St. Paul's Morning Report podcast. I'm Daniel Ennis, and I'm joined by doctors Barry Casson and Steph Oye. How are you guys? Hey, Danny. We're good. Thanks, Thanks for having us again, Danny. This has been great. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you're it has been great. We just got here, Barry. <laughs> <laughs> I've, I've been here for a while. I guess the way we do the introduction makes it sound like I am inviting you guys back every time. So That's you're true. you're here at at my whim. Um, let me let me also introduce our very special guest, Anthony Gador, who is a senior GIM fellow here at the University of British Columbia and a, a total superstar. So we're really excited to have you. Hey, Anthony, how are you? I'm I'm well. How are you? Thank you for inviting me. Great. Thanks hey, for coming, Anthony. You're a big get for this podcast. So thanks for. Oh uh, yeah, the biggest, <laughs> the biggest. Speaking of big gets. We just found out that um, there was some charting that our producer found that showed that this podcast, the St. Paul's Morning Report podcast, or the SPHMRP for short, is number one in medical podcasts in Indonesia. Steph, your your take on that. Wow. It's pretty big news. Um, It's pretty big news. I I think there's like a podcast awards, right, Danny? It's called the Potties or something. I I, I feel (laughs) like we should be getting a potty. Well, I I checked uh, my mail today for for a potty and (laughs) no Mm. no invite yet. But I wish I could say uh, hello to our Indonesian uh, hosts uh, or people or listeners, but I can't. So. Um, we'll figure that out next time. Next yeah. time we might be able to do it. Yes. We owe them. We owe them a big hello. I yes, think so. we we owe them a debt. That's actually it's a, it's it's funny, but it is also awesome. So I'm thrilled it's that amazing. people are, are listening. I'm pleased. I'm, I'm, I'm still surprised anyone is listening. Right, <laughs> I am barely listening. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so Anthony has put together a, a case for us, and uh, we are going to. Whoa, 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 hold our, on, Danny. Hold on, hold on. Couple of quick items that I was hoping to get off my chest first. Uh, right. We're still looking for a beer sponsor. So, if anyone out there feels like getting their name attached to the number one podcast in medicine in Indonesia, you let us know. Um, you know, I think the other thing, Danny, we talked about this earlier. That's true is that we are looking for other ways to connect with the people who listen to the podcast. If there's anyone out there who wants to be a guest presenter, uh, please let us know. We, we're open to to cracking the tough nuts, and if those tough nuts come from guests other than our usual guests that we invite, please, we're more than welcome to do that. Yeah, um, totally. So, yeah, we we do genuinely. We're building a little bit of an audience here, and I do want to connect with the people who find this useful or enjoyable. So how would, they connect, how would they connect with us and how would they get us their... Uh, we have their... an email address, right, Danny? Yeah, we do. Um, Nikki, uh, maybe you can put it into the show notes at the bottom of the podcast, a little intro there, because I can't remember it off the top of my head. That's okay. That's the level of commitment that we've got to this show. <laughs> <laughs> we'll, we'll find it for you. We'll dig it out of our original emails and, uh, and put it into the show notes. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I do want to, I do want to connect with the people who, who find this um, useful. Totally. And the other and thing I, I would like to hear from our listeners, if you have any comments about uh, our podcasts or the themes or things that you would like to have us discuss, I'd be, I'd be grateful for you to, to just let us know through that email. Yeah, or if you have any specific criticisms of Barry's performance in the podcast, we'd also be <laughs> open to hearing that. And to, and to that end, I'll just give you uh, Barry's private phone number. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Sorry, we're, it's already out there. Yeah. It's in, uh, it's in all the bathroom stalls at St. Paul's. Yeah. <laughs> all right. <laughs> With that, we'll move on to the actual content of this podcast, which is trying to solve cases and having a beer while we do it. So, Anthony, we'll hand it over to you, and uh, let's hear this case. Thanks, Danny. So, this was a very uh, challenging case I saw a few years ago, and it took uh, several months of uh, inpatient management and decision-making to eventually arrive at a diagnosis. So, I hope you guys find it interesting, because it certainly was uh, very challenging. I I realize it's very early in the case, but Danny, tell me confidence-wise, how are you feeling right now? I'm feeling pretty, I'm feeling shockingly confident. Are you? <laughs> yeah. You must have had more to drink than I have. I, I'm I'm not feeling great already. I, I'm just joking. If Anthony couldn't solve it in the first month, I'm not sure we're going to solve it in uh, 30 minutes. So <laughs> we'll see. Okay, let's hear it. 
So we've got a 45-year-old gentleman with a history notable for renal transplantation for biopsy-proven FSGS and some hypertensive disease. He's coming to acute care with a approximately four-month history of progressive nausea, vomiting, and postprandial abdominal pain. So he first noticed gastrointestinal symptoms with pain, nausea, and non-bloody diarrhea four months prior to presenting when he was visiting friends and family in Punjab. So at that time, he required a two-day hospitalization locally and was treated with a course of antibiotics. Uh, He can't remember what those antibiotics were. And he had complete resolution of his symptoms. And because he felt so well, he made no changes to his itinerary and he stayed in India for uh, a whole month. So when he returns to Canada in roughly one week, he uh, starts to have symptoms returning again. And the hallmark of his symptom complex is that he has abdominal pain that's relieved with self-induced vomiting. So he grumbles along for three months in Canada. He thinks he's lost roughly six kilograms. Uh, He's tried an outpatient course of over-the-counter acid reducers with Zantac. Uh, with no benefit. And he's tried some over-the-counter acetaminophen, and that doesn't produce any significant benefit. So he currently in the ED denies any issues with uh, fevers now or historically. He's had no rigors. There's no night sweats. He says he has no diarrhea. There's been no blood pyrectum ever. He uh, denies any upper GI bleeding signs or symptoms. And from a general standpoint, he's had no rash or arthralgia. There's been no you know, ocular complaints, uh, and he has no new-onset cardiorespiratory complaints, sputum production, etc. His background medical history is notable for prior uh, peritoneal dialysis and uh, one episode of culture-negative uh, peritonitis. He had a successful renal transplant six years ago uh, prior to presenting. He was EBV positive and CMV positive, and it was a deceased donor transplant. Baseline creatinine sits in the 120s to 140s. Uh, He had a history of hyperparathyroidism with a fragility fracture of the right tibia, and he's had a partial uh, parathyroidectomy. He has well-controlled hypertension, and that's pretty much it from a medical perspective. Uh, His surgical history is notable for the PD catheterization. He had an open reduction internal fixation for the fracture and the renal transplant. From a social perspective, he was a long-haul truck driver. He's currently uh, not working. He speaks mainly Punjabi with some English and was born and raised in Punjab. He immigrated in 2000. He's never drank. Uh, There's no tobacco consumption or recreational drug use. He's in a monogamous relationship, lives out in the Fraser Valley, and his family history is non-contributory. There's only cardiometabolic illness in his first-degree relatives. So his medications are pretty unremarkable. Aside from uh, transplant immunosuppression, he's on MMF a gram twice daily, uh, tacrolimus uh, 0.5 and a milligram, uh, atenolol and diltiazem for hypertension, uh, and septra for PCP prophylaxis. There's been no recent changes to his chronic medications, and he hasn't found acid reduction to be helpful at all. When he comes to the emergency department on examination, he's notably thin, He's afebrile. He's normotensive. There's no respiratory distress. He's um, saturating well on room air. He has mild abdominal tenderness with no rebound or guarding. There are some clinical markers that there's uh, abdominal free fluid. He looks uncomfortable, but he's not toxemic. He appears to have a chronically unwell complexion, kind of pallid in color. And uh, he's just just seems tired from the foot of the bed. Uh, He's not clubbed. There's no uh, palpable masses, uh, no hepatosplenomegaly. He has no adenopathy anywhere. There's just a prior left lower quadrant scar from the previous renal transplant. Screening blood work is not really too remarkable. His creatinine's in 130s. The electrolytes are normal. The only major abnormalities are elevated CRP at 30. Uh, His LFTs, his lipase, all normal. ECG is normal. Uh, Coags are totally normal. And no other biochemical abnormalities are really identified. So, an oral contrast CT abdomen pelvis is obtained. But before we get that, any ideas as to what's causing this man being unwell? Yeah. I mean, so, you know, what, what is tricky with this case is, so you're, let's say this, this was a presentation of nausea, vomiting, and diarrhea, abdominal pain of four months duration. That, that already is a difficult illness script. It's layered on to the fact that he's immunosuppressed. He's also from... Elsewhere, in particular, he's got recent travel and is from, in particular, a place where tuberculosis is endemic. And so there's there's a lot of, this is an onion, you know, there's a lot of layers to this and um, there's going to be a whole bunch of things to consider. But 
this is another one of those cases and tell me Barry and Danny, if you think I'm crazy, if this guy was being seen in a hospital where like closer to where he's from, I wonder if he would just be treated empirically for tuberculosis, given that he's immunosuppressed and that's a common endemic indolent infection and in where he's, where he lives. Yeah. I think that's an interesting thought. I'm curious about like, he reports this, that his abdominal pain improves with self-induced vomiting. And I'm wondering like that, that's so specific like i haven't really heard that sort of story before and i'm wondering if that points us in a different direction at all i uh, you're right like i think elsewhere uh, they may treat empirically i guess like if if he's admitted here this would not be like that wouldn't be like my first uh inclination and i don't think you're saying it's yours either but um that's on the list i don't think that i actually know what's going on at all like do you, do you think that it, Steph, do you think it's TB? You know, I, I wouldn't say, I would say from a kind of epidemiological standpoint, Yeah, I'm definitely considering it. And then there's this little nugget and it's probably nothing, but he has this, this episode of culture negative PD peritonitis. Mm-hmm. And, and I don't know that, that that's not, you know, TB necessarily, but it does kind of bring that to mind um yeah. yeah so so i don't think that's a i don't think that's a smoking gun but but it does make me think yeah i, I again I, I certainly am not at the point of 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 crossing the treatment threshold for tuberculosis but it is in the back of my mind and i think it's going to be until we've proven that the man does not have it i, I want to hear something that seems more likely you know mm-hmm. what about like cmv colitis and this immune suppressed guy with the cmv positive transplant like I'd why, him why to would have, it have like activated like <laughs> over in the in Punjab specifically? I, yeah, I have no idea, but just and it seems to have effect. responded to antibiotics. Yeah, and he has nausea and vomiting. You know, I'd expect CMV colitis to be abdominal pain and diarrhea predominantly. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, Barry? that's a good point. Yeah, so I guess uh, seeing him would be very helpful for us. Uh, Anthony's described. I think I have an image in my mind, but Anthony's described a man that's lost weight and is wasted. And I think we're agreeing, or at least we're suggesting that whatever's happening is intra-abdominal. So there may be a systemic illness, but certainly the pathology we're discussing, Danny pointed out, he's vomit, he's inducing vomiting, which relieves his pain, which sounds like, at least in part, some bowel involvement, and maybe that's part of the issue. And I think if he, you know, if we saw this guy and he had a big protuberant abdomen and anocytes, we'd say, "Holy, you know, I mean, that would focus us one way." If we saw that he was distended and that he had not a lot of fluid, he had somebody had big bowel loops, that would be another. I think Steph's bang on. I mean, he's from the right part of the world. He's on immunosuppression. Um, he's got a disease that, and and who knows what he received for antibiotic therapy in India? Maybe. He maybe had a zithro, maybe he had maybe he had a moxie, and he's partially, you know, he, he had the beginning of treatment of TB. I think that's that has to be our certainly working thought. So I don't have anything clever to say, but I, as I say, I think that what you're both saying is what I would say, and where we're focusing is where the pathology is. Last thing I want to say before we uh, let Anthony carry on: Do you guys think any link to this past history of FSGS, which um, I don't think. I, I don't think I heard in the past medical history, like whether it was primary or, or secondary. Do we have a sense of that? I believe it's primary. I don't, uh, it okay. didn't factor well, largely into the case. Can I ask a question about his perineal? We talked to, there was one infection with his perineal dialysis. Do we know anything more in terms of duration of dialysis or, or problems? Yeah, so he had a peritoneal di- uh, dialysis for eight years prior to his transplant six years ago. Okay. I think that's a good question, Danny, about the FSGS. And I, and I, I would really, I mean, if, yeah, it, I mean, it sounds like it took months to solve this case. And that is, it, it, uh, whether, whether that line of questioning is fruitful or not, it is the kind of thing that I would definitely go down mm-hmm. to try to make sure that that was sorted out. Because, you know, if, if I could only ever ask one question to a patient, it would be, have you ever had this before? Yeah. Um, and so... And so getting to understand someone's past medical history and the nitty gritty of it, particularly when they're presenting with something that you don't fully understand, I think is a really good place to start. So, uh, yeah, I mean, it sounds like maybe that was not helpful here, but I think in general, that is a helpful line to go down. So given the obvious um, 
abdominal complaints. He gets a non um, an oral contrasted CT abdomen pelvis, uh, so it's not IV enhanced. I'll just go through the interpreting radiologist's um, uh, findings. So they're seeing a moderate to significant amount of intra-abdominal free fluid. There's associated thickening and mild enhancement seen on the peritoneal reflections, as well as the mesenteric leaflets tracking into the pelvis. However, at the current time, there's no evidence of encapsulation or obstruction to the small or large bowel loops. There are numerous foci of calcification seen along the omental surface, as well as along the peritoneal lining and the mesentery and into the perihepatic space. These findings could represent an ongoing infectious peritonitis. There's uh, abnormal appearing distal small bowel loops identified within with, sorry, with evidence of smooth circumferential thickening and increased mucosal enhancement extending for a distance of approximately 20 centimeters up to the terminal ileum, also concerning for an infectious enteritis. There are small to prominent lymph nodes scattered throughout the small bowel mesentery, and uh, there's no evidence of bowel obstruction. Uh, liver, spleen, pancreas, gallbladder, adrenal glands, urinary bladder, and prostate are all remarkable. The transplant kidney in the left lower quadrant is essentially unremarkable and shows some incidental cysts. Both kidneys show changes of chronic medical renal disease, and numerous cysts are seen in both kidneys. However, in the upper pole of the left kidney, there is a partially exophytic soft tissue enhancing mass measuring 3.6 by 2.9 centimeters, concerning for a renal cell carcinoma. Also in the mid pole of the left kidney is an additional smaller soft tissue nodule measuring 1.4 by 1.0 centimeters, uh, could also be concerning for additional malignancy. There's a benign appearing lytic nodule in the left femoral head and possible aneurysmal bone cyst. No other suspicious bone lesions are seen. The lung cuts are unremarkable. So I guess given the CT scan prior to them going up to the ward for admission, I suppose what would be the favored diagnosis at this time? Can I just summarize your, your CT scan yeah, findings good. and make sure that I understand? <laughs> good luck. So he's he's got bowel involvement, thickening of the bowel walls, peritoneal surface involvement, calcification, in the parent, I think you said peritoneal area, lymphadenopathy, and then this lesion in the kidney that's suspicious for malignancy. Is that is that a summary with ascites? Oh, both kidneys. Oh, both kidneys. Mm. Uh, the the left has the exophytic mass, but there's cysts in both native kidneys. So the, it's the left one where they're suggesting it may be a malignancy. That's correct. Yeah, it's actually yeah. So they they remark that it's it looks radiographically like a renal cell. Right, and 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 and. Uh, and a, just a small amount of fluid or, or a, a significant amount? amount uh, yeah, moderate to significant amount. Thank you. Well, I'm, I'm glad you tried to summarize that because um, I was thinking like a lot of jelly in these donuts. Like there's a lot of <laughs> stuff on this CT, right? <laughs> like I, like after you said the first thing, I'm like, oh, good. We can, we can biopsy that. And then you said another thing. I'm like, oh, okay. I guess we could biopsy that. Then you said like four more things. I'm like, well, now what are we going to biopsy? Now, there's <laughs> now we have too many options. That that CT report was so complicated. I actually ran out of ink. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, I mean it was so. That's why I had to summarize for myself because it's just lots happening. And and the and the radiologist commitment uh, from the report continues to be suggesting infection. So their yeah, their impression actually. So summarizing these findings on point number one is given the patient's travel history, tuberculosis remains in the differential. We would recommend image-guided aspiration of the abdominal free fluid for analysis. Point number two is radiographically definitive malignancy in the native left kidney, as well as a possible second soft tissue nodule in the midpole of the left kidney also uh, raises the concern for uh, small renal cell malignancy and then other incidental findings noted as above. And sorry, Anthony, are they suggesting that the malignancy and the intra-abdominal processes are linked or, or they're just suggesting? They're telling uh, you there's two things there. So that yeah. they say we're pretty confident that uh, the basis of imaging, he's got a renal cell on the left kidney and that he's got ascites and enteritis, uh, mainly at the terminal ileum. Oh, tricky, Barry. You, we have to decide that. That's not for the radiologist to decide. <laughs> we well, have to decide asking. if those are linked. You tricky guy. <laughs> When you're older, you get trickier. Yeah, you are tricky. So yeah, I think we have to. I, I and it, you know, it's. I, I was thinking that myself. Like, can we can we draw a link between those two findings? And I, I can't. I struggle to. This seems like an incidentally discovered RCC and uh, maybe infectious process involving the ileum and the peritoneum. One thing that I'm gonna keep in the back of my head, and I think this is more roundsmanship than that. Like, I actually think this is 
like what I would think of at the time is just that renal cell carcinomas have all sorts of like perineoplastic nonsense. And so I am, I don't think that that's like really what's going on here yet, but I'm going to keep that in the back of my head that uh, if I start to see like real crazy nonsense going on, or it becomes like encephalopathic or something, I'm going to pay even closer attention to that renal cell. So you know, what are we going to do now? Because maybe the order of operations is actually going to help us. Like maybe we have to do certain things first. Like we're being told that we should probably drain some fluid. I think we were probably going to do that anyways. What's the urgency to talk to urology to talk about partial or or complete nephrectomy? What do you guys want to do? I think you can do those two things at the same time. I'm probably also talking to GI about having a look in his ileum. Yeah. I think back to Steph's original concept that you endorsed, Annie, and I think, I mean, if we were if we were limited by our ability to ma- do further diagnostics, this terminal allele involvement, ascites, the indolent, the previous peritonitis, this place of origin, uh, it's hard to to move away from the TB concept, mm-hmm. and so in recognizing that TB continues to be elusive, even when you have all the inf- all of the potential diagnostics that we have available to us, I think that uh, TB continues uh, would be high on my list. Cool. So So, tap and referral to urology in hospital is kind of the, what we're thinking here, eh? Which is exactly what happens as well as an ID consultation. Yes, Um, of course. I mean, (laughs) I have, I have the sand for God. I don't need ID consultations. (laughs) <laughs> Ouch! <laughs> yeah. I, I use Spectrum MD and uh, Bing. <laughs> there. All right. So, what do we get back, Anthony? So, because he's got some complicated uh, abdominal anatomy, he gets an IR-guided peritoneal fluid sampling, and that shows um, an ascites albumin of twenty-eight. His serum albumin. Uh, uh, well, he has a sag of two, so his serum albumin was thirty. Uh, the ascites protein was fifty-two. The LDH. Uh, was uh, 280. His white blood cell count uh, was 280 cells times 10 to the 6, lymphocyte predominant, and the AFB smear at that time was negative. It subsequently sent off for culture, uh, which, as you guys know, will take weeks. The endoscopy is requested for uh, abdominal pain, as well as a lower GI biopsy of the uh, terminal ileum. Uh, Infectious diseases uh, recommends a TB IGRA test, sputum AFBs, a CT of the chest, and to look for other areas of uh, tuberculosis. So I guess just briefly, uh, with TB peritonitis, they describe three potentially overlapping clinical entities. So one of them is a wet acidic entity known for inflammatory and protonaceous exudate with significant ascites. They can then transition into a fibrotic fixed uh, disorder where there's adhesions of the omentum and mesentery. And eventually it gets burnt out to the point that you have dry plastic type presentation with diffuse fibrosis and nodules studded throughout the peritoneum. And these can be present all at the same time, or they can progress through a sequence. So is the feeling from the team at that time that like, okay, we're actually seeing like various stages of tuberculous peritonitis all at the same time, like the calcinosis, the lymph nodes, um, the per- like um, the, the sag that you gave us. Was that like the the general impression? Was everyone leaning heavily towards TB at that point? I think TB was um, pretty much through the door. Was the is you know the the number one concern, but securing the diagnosis, you know, as you know, can be quite challenging, even when uh, you're highly suspicious. So there's a number of treatment algorithms. Uh, some tests that we actually don't have access to, although it does make it into the board exams with the adenosine deaminase. They say can be quite helpful on acidic fluid analysis and then PCR amplification, although the test performance of that really depends on tissue. So for example, in pleural disease, it's estimated to be around 30% accurate, whereas in bone and synovial sampling can be upwards of 85 to 90% accurate. So nice. uh, And and I think that, you know, I mean, I think that it'd be, I'd be interested to hear ID's comment, but I think that Given his description and given his peritoneal fluid findings, and you know whether we actually treated him at this point, I guess would depend on how acutely unwell he is. But I think it supports the diagnosis of TB. Yeah, are, are you guys ready to treat for TB? I, I think it depends how sick he is. Same. 
I mean, if he were acutely unwell, if he were febrile and he were circling the drain, I think I'd pull a plug and say, let's do it. But isn't that like, not, yeah, I mean, like, not to be a pain, but isn't that kind of like, well, yeah, like if he's doing really bad, then of course, like we're going to treat for the most common thing, but like, why not treat him now? What are you like, wh- why wait until he gets worse? Because that's like your leaning diagnosis and it seems like we're moving towards it. We'll see. But but why wait? What's the what's the math there? Yeah, I, I you know if there were no toxicities to the treatment, I would say absolutely. And I still would think we're dealing w- with some. I mean, he has this potential malignancy, and how does that fit into things? I guess that that's one complicating factor. And so, could this be malignancy? And should we be more aggressive in terms of trying to make a diagnosis? We're doing the GI evaluations. We're doing the, the urology. Uh, should be I, I just you know even the trials that suggested there are such trials but the the therapeutic trial of therapy that took place in the Far East even those are I think it's contextual that you know they they point out that that's certainly one of the diagnostic ways and and therapeutic ways of dealing with uh, this uncertainty but I don't think we're, I'm there yet okay that's fair. All right. You know, so we, the other the other thing is that we may have this like really relevant and important clue coming. Let's say the guy gets a nephrectomy in the next week. There may be something, you know, we may have a surprise there in that pathology that that actually points us in a totally different direction. Sure. And so, yeah, you're about to get tissue. It may not be a tissue that you were initially interested in, but you may get a very helpful tissue coming here. So, right. Yeah, and he, and he's, it's hard to die of tuberculosis. Like, I mean, being the way he is, it's hard to die, die of tuberculosis acutely. So yeah. I would probably, yeah, wait and see what this nephrectomy shows. Okay. And I guess we're also getting a an upper scope of some kind. We'll see and what that, that pathology yeah. shows. Yeah. All right. Awesome. That makes sense. So he gets an upper GI endoscopy that shows grade C esophagitis, which there's only a grade D, so it's pretty bad. Uh, diffuse gastritis. And there's no gastric outlet obstruction for the complaint of his postprandial nausea and then relief with vomiting. He has a lower GI endoscopy that shows some superficial ulcerative changes at the terminal ileum Whoa. and some scattered diverticular disease. A technical note during the procedure is made of a, a very difficult to traverse uh, colon, particularly the transverse and right-sided colon, and a stricture at the sigmoid. Uh, urology opinion is obtained and they agree that this is almost certainly a renal cell carcinoma, but are hesitant to take to the operating theater if there's a concern for active TB, how that would relate to wound healing. So they prefer for stabilization of his GI pathology before taking him to theater. With discussion from ID, general surgical opinions obtained to see if there's any value of a a peritoneal biopsy, but they're uh, reticent to pursue this uh, given his history of a peritoneal dialysis and some significant risk for frozen bowel, and they feel that the uh, harms might potentially outweigh the diagnostic yield, but are willing to revisit it if the case necessitates and if his less invasive diagnostics um, return any positive findings for TB. So at this (laughs) point, I I think I would um, follow Danny's advice, and uh, since I'm and we're not in the position of operating on him, and since there have been two surgical services that are saying they're not operating until he's, we've excluded, I don't know, excluded is the wrong word, but dealt with this interperitoneal processes, which could strongly suggest TB, everything we've heard, including the ulcerations in the terminal ileum, and it's going to be six weeks, and even then we might be inconclusive. I think I'd, uh, I think at this point, I'd give him, I'd start him on anti-tuberculous therapy. What do you think, Steph? Yeah, I mean, I, I think it would be hard to convince a whole bunch of people at this stage that he has TB. So I think we're a little bit stuck right now. I, I don't think we've crossed the threshold for treatment yet. Well, Dan, you're the you're yeah. the tiebreaker. I, yeah, I mean, I think you're you were both right that uh, there is more information that I want before I'm certain about the diagnosis. But I think going back to like Steph, what you said at the beginning that like the likelihood. In another setting, through another lens, the likelihood it's TB is just really, really high in an immune-suppressed person with et cetera, et cetera. And so now we have a case that does look like potentially TB. And if we say, well, I, I don't want to treat yet, and surgery says, well, we're not going to do anything until you treat, and the other surgeon says, well, we're not going to do anything if they're not going to do anything, and then it comes back 
to us again, I think I feel like a, almost obliged, like there's a little bit of pressure to do something. And recognizing that, have to be careful not to just do stuff without a good reason. But I think there's a pretty decent story for TB. And you're right, there are potential side effects from treatment, but by and large, well-tolerated treatment. So I think I would be, he has normal synthetic function of the liver. I think I'm happy to start therapy if, if ID has a high index of suspicion and we can stop it if we need to. So but, but why ID, Dan, Dan, sorry, Danny, why, what happens if ID says there have been a moderate uh, suggestion? Would that influence? I mean, you've, you've made a case and Steph's made the case. Yeah. I mean, if, I'm not arguing with you. I'm just wondering how ID is going to influence you that much. I, I think if I talk to ID and they're like, we really don't have a like it's not a strong, strong suspicion, suspicion for TB. It's a so-so. It's a so-so okay. suspicion. Then I'd be like, oh, okay. Like then, then that's this is a content deficit for me. Like I, I haven't seen enough TB peritonitis to know better. Um, it's just like the, the big blinking light for me. So I can't see anything else. I'm, I'm kind of anchored to the diagnosis here. So I, I think that's that's kind of why if if I say, hey, my index is pretty high, and ID says like, yeah, we think it's TB then I'm not sure uh, I would I would wait a whole lot longer, especially since like if, if some of our other investigations are paused until we have uh, um, started treatment, potentially. I guess one of the other issues, the piece of information that we didn't get but was ordered initially is the IGRA. I'm not actually sure how the IGRA would help me here, but I'm interested to hear because that was one of the ID's recommendations. If the IGRA is negative, I don't know how to interpret that. If the IGRA is positive, I don't know how to interpret that, but they ordered the test. Maybe you two have a different thought on it. Yes, if it's positive, he has at least latent TB. And if it's negative, it doesn't really adjust the likelihood that what we're dealing with is active TB. Steph, is that like sort of what you think? Um, I think so. I think that that sounds right to me. Yeah. I don't know. I feel a little bit stuck here. I mean, this is, again, it's like, I think you're, you're kind of right. Like we've involved now several people. There's ID, there's RESP, there's urology seeing this patient. I, I would, I would also like to know what exactly is the reluctance from urology to take this person to the OR? Like just take out their kidney. Like what's, what's the deal here? I, I don't understand why, why they don't want to do that. I don't see how that has to do with, with their other issues. So as long as we don't think they have active pulmonary tuberculosis, taking them to the OR should not be a big deal. Like, I, yeah. So th that's also a conversation that probably needs to be had. The only thing I'd say about that in my, my zero surgical experience with this is that it sounds like there's pathology intra-abdominally. And my understanding is if they took them to the OR, this would be a retroperitoneal procedure. So would we gain and we would take out the kidney, but would we be any further ahead? I don't know how easy it is. I recognize it's just across the membrane, but I don't know if they would, if they didn't have to go into perineally and were successful, if they would take out the kidney and not invade the perineal space. It's a good point. I don't know. I, I think that's right. This is worth like a staff to staff, team to team discussion. Yeah. Cause like, yeah, I mean, we're a little stuck until we have tissue and there's so much tissue to get. Um, I think that would really help us nail down the case or at least rule out some other stuff perhaps. All right, Anthony. So what, uh, what happened on, on your end? Anthony, do, did they biopsy those um, ileal lesions? Uh, no, they did not. It wasn't. Well, they, they did it through lower GI endoscopy. And so the results of his endoscopy come back, the, uh, but not the cultures. So he's found to have uh, helicobacter pylori gastritis, fairly severe on his upper GI endoscopy. Uh, no other findings there. And so triple therapy was initiated at that time. With respect to his lower GI endoscopy and biopsy, it doesn't show any granulomas. There's no acid fast bacilli. There's no cryptitis, but there is evidence of some active enteritis at those, the level of those superficial ulcers. They send CMV. Uh, the CMV stains are, are negative, and so they kind of have just an abnormality in the mucosal surface that they can't explain. Classic Whipples. <laughs> yeah, well, not quite classic. But, <laughs> well, no, no, but I mean, not quite classic. I get you. He uh, maybe feels a little bit better with the uh, H. pylori therapy. Uh, he's able to keep most of his meals down. So at that time, plans are made for 
discharge with respective outpatient subspecialty follow-up. He's to follow up with ID for the culture findings for his TB workup. Uh, They've deferred initiating treatment at that time. He has outpatient follow-up with urology for further consideration of the timing of uh, a nephrectomy. There's no specific plans made with uh, the general surgery service, and there's no specific plans made with uh, the gastroenterology service. So with that, he is discharged after seemingly being stable, and unfortunately represents within two days with increasing abdominal distension and worsening abdominal free fluid identified by uh, bedside sonography. Can I can I ask you a question though, Anthony? I mean, so we've identified, or it's been identified that he's got Helicobacter, and recognizing that we're treating this, was the thought that this accounted for all of his findings and all of his and independent of his uh, his neoplasm? I mean, going home, I understand, but I mean, are, are we further? Like, I I'm just not sure the thought process that now he's going unless he wants to go home because he's not doing anything, but. I don't think we're further ahead. I agree. No, not 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 really. But uh, you know, he's saying, you know, I'm not. Maybe feel a little bit better, and so you know, uh, decides that he's okay to go. Uh, okay. So so now we're on our our second admission. So that means that's my second beer. <laughs> <laughs> You're going to get sponsorship. <laughs> One way or another. Yeah, I mean, this is either the worst case of H. pylori on, in history or. I mean, or or people are saying, you know what, we have faith in the outpatient world to sort this out, but I don't. I, I, I think this is, there. there's a lot of things I'm willing to take on in the outpatient department. This is not one of them. Yeah. This would be a coordination I, I, nightmare um, as an outpatient, I think. I think. Uh, like, I think it would well, be no, it hard would. and it would I, fall through. It would, things would drag on and you'd, you'd see the urologist, oh, before you see the ID doc. So they say, okay, we'll make an appointment after you see ID. ID sees, they say, all right, well, we need to wait a couple more weeks because the culture's not back yet. And around we go. And then it's like four months later and they're like, oh yeah, oh right. You have some renal cell carcinoma. (laughs) Like, doesn't that have to come out? (laughs) Isn't that a big deal? I feel like I'm taking crazy pills here. (laughs) Well, I think I, I, I agree with you. I mean, as I'd say, it's ascites with helicobacters. I think we're writing it up. That, that being said, we discharge stable patients, right? Like we, we don't just let someone, like it's not Hotel St. Paul's and I definitely wouldn't want to stay uh, admitted to St. Paul's if I was feeling good enough to go home. So, you know, that's that's just how I okay. go. Yeah. So he's back, at Anthony. And he uh, has worsening ascites, which is tapped and he goes home again uh, from the again. Uh, ED with, uh, without admission. Obviously the... Uh, ascites is sent for the exact same stuff and uh, is unchanged in terms of all of its characteristics as before. Can uh, I say something at this point? So we actually didn't maybe didn't miss, go through it last time, but but he's got an inflammatory component to his ascites. Do you agree? That, that, that's correct. Yeah. I mean, so whatever is happening is ongoing inflammatory component, which we haven't accounted for yet. So shortly after his tap, he comes back within five days. Uh, again, with worsening abdominal pain, nausea and vomiting, uh, and the abdominal distension is back. So the decision is made, again, to readmit. At this point, uh, his case is completely reviewed uh, with all the microbiology that's been obtained so far. The TB cultures remain negative. TB PCR uh, is sent and is negative on the acidic fluid. His IGRA, as we mentioned before, is strongly positive at 633 Units per oh. ml, uh, the upper limit of normal is 0.33. And a historical note is made from his pre-transplant um, assessment in which he had a tuberculin skin test that was negative, although he was immune suppressed in the setting of his uh, FSGS. So potentially he had energy at that part. So he is admitted and there's more diagnostic and treatment decisions made. And infectious diseases is obviously reconsulted and the decision is made at that time to initiate ripe Boom. therapy. on. The- Bang, there we go. So clinical radiographic impression plus a presumed newly positive TBI group is the decision-making that, uh, or the data that drives this decision-making. And so because he's, I guess, not getting better, which is the same as getting worse in cases like this. (laughs) I love it. That's legit. (laughs) He uh, has, again, moderate to large volume ascites. 
there's enhancement at the peritoneum and calcification redemonstrated. Now there's multiple loops of mild, mildly dilated small bowel uh, with a maximum dilatation of 5.3 centimeters. Uh, there's no clear transition point. He's got uh, stable nodules. There's no hydronephrosis. The renal mass is unchanged. And the distal ileum still demonstrates uh, wall thickening and hyperenhancement consistent with enteritis. So in total, they say, given a presumed diagnosis of TB, the constellation of findings continues to be worrisome for TB peritonitis. You, you know, I, I think at this point, this is this. How, how, how far into his, uh, how far are we from his initial admission? Are we a week or three weeks or how, how, so how far are we? His first admission was approximately a month. So it was around 20 days or so in order to get all those tests and, and consults. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. And then he first present uh, prior to coming to the hospital. His first symptom was four months prior to that. So he's got around a five-month history uh, now of um, pro- what sounds to be either stable or subtly progressive abdominal complaints. And so we've, ha- we've, we've had him for a, a five weeks. We've seen him intermittently over the course. Is that correct? That, that would be a fairly accurate, yeah. You know, what I, what I heard about Curious. a minute ago was Danny and Barry just letting off the gas. They're saying, okay, this is it. We've got it. This is TB. We're done. And, and what I heard was two men falling into a trap. <laughs> there is no way that Anthony Godore brought us a case of extrapulmonary tuberculosis. It's just not, it's not no, happening. I, so, so I am, I'm sitting back here like omniscient, just, I don't even, I don't know what it is, but I know it's not extrapulmonary TB because Anthony wouldn't do that. So you, you didn't you say you, boom, like one minute ago, I did. No, boom was the, it was the trap closing on you and Barry. Oh, yeah. I see. You, know, you guys have just, but, but you just didn't. fallen for this story. Like, it's oh case closed no big deal we're walking away another case of tb solved by the genius internist no sir bob you guys have just fall i don't know what the trap is exactly but you guys just fell into it well hold on you didn't hear i mean you didn't give us a chance and maybe danny wants to say if he would have done anything different or he he, he fell into the trap by himself or he took me with him or i took him with him so danny would Listen, you have done if, any would if you it's not started? pressed danny's not going to get it so don't worry about it yeah. <laughs> so all right, that's fair. But I so <laughs> um I yes, I would be it, when the Igra came back positive, I think I would probably turn to my team and be like, "See, I told you so." Like kind of a a, a bit a bit snarky, but but honestly, after a minute I'd be like, "I think we still need to consider and worry about this renal mass that is presumed but is not proven." to be renal cell carcinoma. And just because we think this is TB, he certainly, he has latent TB. I'm comfortable with that. So I think he needs treatment minimum for that. I I do want some of the serology, like the PCRs and the cultures. I would really like something to come back positive so that I can be certain that he has, that that the intra, all of the intraperitoneal process is TB. So yes, I, I think I would fall into the trap. I think I would feel pretty clever and but i am always like i am always happy to be proven wrong that, that doesn't bother me <laughs> well that's not so but i but i um i i'm still you know i certainly think that tb is the number one leading diagnosis but i have to say and my experience even though greater than both of yours you because i'm older but my experience is limited and the tb peritonitis that i've seen looks like ascites and studded peritoneum, but all of this other stuff, this intense description that we heard of this uh, abdominal CT with the layers of this and doing this, I wonder, I I think we need some tissue to try and we don't have a firm diagnosis and I don't have an alternate at this point, but it's bizarre. So I mean, could he have like RCC with secondary amyloidosis? I don't know. You know, he's got an inflammatory. He's got ascites. He's got uh, he's got this calcification and layers, and he's got this. And he, I mean, what's uh, if if we're sticking a needle in, or if, if uh, not us, but if IR puts a needle in, couldn't we do a laparoscopy and and get tissue and and confirm our diagnosis or see this studded peritoneum? Or I mean, he it sounds like he's got bowel obstruction. He's got bowel involved. I mean, it wouldn't be hard from what the description in his his clinical course and the description we're hearing by imaging and others, we should be kind of right in the soup. Let's get in that soup. 
Well, that's anyway, what was done, Anthony? <laughs> well, serving up soup for three weeks. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what happened? So another colonoscopy is performed uh, to see if there's been any interval change to ho- hopefully increase the diagnostic yield, see if there's any granulomas. And unfortunately, they do two colonoscopies. Again, still technically difficult given the impression of fixed transverse colon uh, and sigmoid uh, stricture. No granuloma, no cryptitis, no acid fast bacilli, uh, and no CMV inclusion bodies. So he grumbles along for three weeks of uh, anti-tubercular therapy on this admission and continues to have significant nausea and is now continuing to lose weight. He's getting on plain film uh, radiology and ileus without a clear, and then the subsequent CT uh, failing to demonstrate a clear transition point. He requires frequent intermittent NG suctioning for symptomatic relief, and his nutrition is now being supported with a PICC line and TPN. Actually, sorry, Groshong, because they're worried about the uh, renal function, which continues to deteriorate and be fluid responsive. Repeat CT scans are obtained, and it demonstrates ongoing peritoneal hyperenhancement, peritoneal nodularity and calcification, associated mild increase in multifocal small bowel wall thickening and dilatation without a definitive transition point. Constellation of findings are again in keeping with TB peritonitis and enteritis. However, metastatic malignancy is in the differential diagnosis. If the diagnosis remains uncertain, then a peritoneal biopsy should be considered. Um, so now Sorry, it's... So just to comment on that, I mean, if he had TB peritonitis alone, what, what do you guys think? Would he be getting better? For, or do you think it's maybe his issue is he can't hold the medications down? What do you guys Three think? Three weeks into it, he should be getting better. As a the prescriber of very lazy medications that take like six to 12 weeks to work, I, I would honestly have to ask one of you guys or ask ID, like, how long is it supposed to take? How successful are the therapies? Like, is it is it is this 99.9% going to work? Yeah. Or do people break through um, right yeah, there? Barry just asked me and I just told you it should work by now. He should be getting better. And 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 Steph, in the in this population that that are immunosuppressed, uh, with transplant, is that the same response? Yeah, sure. In my vast experience with renal transplant patients who have abdominal tuberculosis, I I honestly have no idea, Barry. But I mean, yeah, yeah. I th- uh, I mean, I think of all people with disseminated tuberculosis as being immunosuppressed, whether we can define the etiology of their, their immunosuppression or not. So, yeah, I I expect within three weeks. I expect them to get better. It's, it's really, fair enough. It's I mean, I, enough to make me question my original diagnosis if they're not getting better. I, I agree with you entirely. I mean, I would have expected, you know, I have, I mean, maybe none of us, if we had to work in a different part of the world, we might have lots of experience, but I don't have that much experience. And I, I, I would be uncomfortable continuing pushing the therapy without a specific diagnosis or support, even though we have lots of circumstantial evidence. I still think that we need to get tissue. And and the CT scans, the imaging is showing us that there's more activity, not less activity. Yeah, is that I, correct, I think, Anthony? And certainly the patient, uh, either through uh, deterioration, through attrition, is looking worse. Uh, he's, he's weaker. He's not ambulating anymore. Whether or not this is, um, you know, situational depression from pretty much being languishing on the ward with no clear diagnosis. He's getting recurrent kidney injury. Uh, he's been phlebotomized to the point of anemia he or uh, chronic inflammation now. To the point of the therapies being efficacious, it's noted by the uh, treating RN that many of the capsules are actually showing up on the, uh, on the NG suction when they're coming back. And so the worry is that he has zero to no significant enteral absorption of the medications so infectious diseases creates a regimen that's uh, by IV. So as rifampin is transitioned to IV, isoniazid uh, continues orally, and uh, linezolid as well as moxifloxacin are added onto his regimen. At this point, given that he's failed ripe therapy, general surgery service is compelled to uh, perform a laparoscopic peritoneal biopsy. Unfortunately, I, uh, I don't have the uh, intraoperative findings that they identified, but a biopsy is obtained. There we go. Here we go, gentlemen. Here we go. Okay. Here we go. Well, let, let me say, do any of us think that this is TB at this point? I think it's RCC, metastatic RCC. Yeah, I agree. Uh, I don't think it's TB. Uh, well, 
if I had to say, if I had to pick one, I'd say not metastatics. If I, I'd pick TB, but somehow I don't think it's TB. So he's got an inflammatory something or other. I don't think you can so. just say whipples. If you want to say whipples, you were so close. It's okay. Yeah. yeah. You were so close to voting, and uh, and then you didn't. Well, <laughs> that was yeah. a vote not to vote. Well, no, no, but I think he needs the biopsy. I just don't I, for for this inflammatory whatever. But I don't. Th- I don't think it's TB. All right. <laughs> Anthony, so as, as it would turn out, upper GI endoscopy is again performed specifically to exclude Whipple's disease. Uh, Whipple's disease, which it does exclude it. That is. Well, the biopsy Can is. Can I ask a question before we go on? Uh, no. Since Danny, you're the expert in Whipple's. How <laughs> is Whipple's no described in in non-Caucasians? Described in non-Caucasians. Uh, I on, I don't know. I don't know the answer. I I assume so. But I guess I haven't looked into that specifically. We've talked about like the very first case of uh, of Whipple's, um, which is like a super fascinating case report worth worth digging up and reading. And uh, I believe that was a Caucasian man. And yeah, uh, I, I, I don't, know, I don't know that answer. I, that was a question, not a not to a knowledge. Yeah, no idea. Uh, I suppose as an aside, um, when I was working the GI service in Surrey, we classically think of celiac as a uh, a Caucasian disease. But there's something about uh, Punjabi Indians, uh, specifically Aryan. Uh, they have some Aryan ethnicity mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. will actually enable them to have celiac disease, which for whatever reason in that population seems to have relatively minimal uh, signs and symptoms, but can present with iron deficiency uh, anemia and then have endoscopic as well as very high uh, TTG titers. So. Oh, wow. So you're pointing out that he actually, when I when I say, I, I guess my reference was he's not Caucasian, but he may be Caucasian or at least have some genetics of Caucasian. Is that correct? That's, I, I suppose so. Yeah. So yeah. they're- If this is celiac disease- uh, Northern Indian. If this ends up being celiac disease, I'm straight up quitting the podcast right tonight. <laughs> <laughs> so he gets worse in between the biopsy uh, being taken- and um, he's now demonstrating overt features of small bowel obstruction. There's no other changing on the CT scan. But at this point, infectious diseases, internal medicine, and general surgery all agree that uh, he can't really get any worse from this process and that uh, he needs to go to theater for uh, diagnostic as well as therapeutic laparotomy. At the same time, they'll do a joint OR with the urology service to resect the left-sided renal carcinoma. So... They resect a fairly large uh, segment, roughly 20 centimeters uh, at the terminal ileum and uh, uh, create a stoma for him. And they send that off for both culture as well as pathology. And we're able to achieve our final diagnosis. So I'll just read out what the pathologist's description is of the resected tissue. So the mucosa is autolytic, but there's no evidence of granulomatous inflammation. The main histological changes are in the serosal aspect of the bowel and within the mesentery. This shows an outer layer of fibrin with sequential layers of dense fibrosis and then areas of acellular fibrosis with pale gray appearance. In the organizing fibrosis areas, there is a sprinkling of chronic inflammatory cells and there is uh, microvascular proliferation. In these sections taken, I do not see calcification. The bowel vasculature is unaffected. These features fit those described in encapsulating peritoneal fibrosis. So the final diagnosis is uh, encapsulating peritoneal sclerosis, otherwise known as uh, sclerosing peritonitis. And this is oftentimes most associated with uh, individuals with usually active peritoneal uh, dialysis or a history of peritoneal dialysis. And so just uh, looking at one of the review articles by Nakamoto in 2005, they say there's multiple stages, but typically include elements of ascites. And I want to make a, a comparison to the kind of analogous stages or entities identified in uh, TB peritonitis. Uh, there's an inflammatory stage with uh, nausea, occasionally diarrhea, and bowel obstruction signs and symptoms, as well as intestinal swelling. And there's inflammation as well as fibrin exudation. The next stage would be encapsulation. Uh, in which they would get a fibrous cocoon causing the obstructive features, and then chronic stage ileus, uh, to which I think he progressed to at the uh, the end of his stay there. So it's a fairly rare diagnosis occurring in less than 0.2% of peritoneal dialysis patients. 
and it can have features of peritoneal enhancement, peritoneal thickening, calcification, bowel tethering, bowel wall thickening, bowel obstruction signs and symptoms, loculated collections are the most often appreciated features of um, encapsulating peritoneal sclerosis. The usual treatment is tamoxifen as well as prednisone. Boo. So, so given that, that, I mean, was the was the renal service ever involved? Because he was he had been on uh, perineal dialysis for eight years, right? So that, and but only one episode of of uh, peritonitis. But was was there any consultation to the renal service, or I guess the transplant service would be the renal service? Is that correct? Yes, most certainly. So uh, they, they advised were. Uh, providing advice on uh, immune modulation and dosage adjustments with the kidney injury, as well as uh, he had a few episodes of kidney injury. Uh, so they were they were involved uh, at least in a peripheral sense. Yes. And was there? Did they make a suggestion that this? I mean, this is a as what you point out a complication of perineal dialysis. Was there any suggestion by that team that? I don't this- think it was recognized. No, but I think the the strength and the feeling of this, you know. This individual returning as a traveler from India, immune suppressed, TB igra. Even the radiographic opinion from the hop was that of uh, TB peritonitis. So I think it in this setting, uh, given that the clinical descriptors as well as the radiographic descriptors are similar, uh, certainly I didn't have any case recognition of this uh, whatsoever, and was quite surprised by the uh, the biopsy finding. Yes, I believe we are all quite surprised. <laughs> I I was not aware. I don't think I was aware of this diagnosis, like this entity at all. It's it's kind of, you know, it's disappointing that with such a long stay and all the right services involved, like I can't think of anyone else who would have heard of this diagnosis outside of the group of people who were all involved. Um, it's a bit of a bummer that um, it, like it wasn't on someone's radar, but I guess that's like, that would be lucky because it's 0.2% of peritoneal dialysis patients, which are already relatively uncommon patients. So like when would any of us have bumped into it? And it was like eight years after they got the transplant. So like they haven't been on, or or, or six years, they haven't been on peritoneal dialysis for a long time. So presumably like the PD and the FSGS and all that, you dug into that past medical history and the workup, like we talked about at the beginning. And then you lay that to rest. You're like, okay, well, we don't think it's related to an underlying cause for the FSGS. It's not Fabry's or something super weird. And you move on. And uh, that that's wild. To, com- to uh, quote our colleague, Dr. Jake Onrod, it's not important to be right. It's important to do the right thing. And in this situation, I think from, from the description at time dot, there was a consideration by involving the surgeons, I don't remember exactly when, with first or second admission, to look at his peritoneum, peritoneal surfaces. Is that correct, Anthony? Uh, yeah, that was a suggestion. In most diagnostic algorithms, the, the gold standard for uh, TB peritonitis is when all else fails and you're still very confident of your diagnosis, laparoscopic uh, per- peritoneal biopsy. Mm-hmm. So That's I think wild. if that, that had been done earlier, so the team sounds like they were on it, they maybe it wasn't important to be right, but just the right thing was to do a laparoscopic assessment. And was that, sorry, and did he have a carcinoma of the kidney? Was that? It, it was a, uh, yeah, a renal cell carcinoma with a good margin. So it had, there's no evidence that it had metastasized outside of Chiroda's uh, okay. capsule. Well, yeah. So he had RCC, he had uh, latent TB, and he had this disease. <laughs> the name of which I have already forgotten. <laughs> encapsulated sclerosing peritonitis, something like that. Is that correct? Something? That's correct. I don't know. You know, uh, well, when I hear this story, uh, even just giving it a name to me is a story about sort of the hubris of modern medicine. Like, like we give this thing a name, but honestly, I don't think we know what the hell happened here. Like, like what is actually going on inside this person's body? We've given this person a sort of descriptive diagnosis, but what is the like sort of pathophysiological problem here? What is the etiology? I still have no idea. Like, like, I think this is a good example of a diagnosis that in 20 years, we'll actually understand, like, this is an infection, or this is like this particular gene that went wrong or whatever. But 
this is just this is just Take yeah this is just a diet like this is just a description this is a pathological description but we don't know what the smoking gun is here and so yeah this is interesting and, and maybe this is just me sounding and being defensive but like come on like this is not this to me suggests that that we actually understand what happened to this person's perineum i don't think we do what how, steph do you have an idea of how we could have gotten to the answer sooner than a month and a half two months i think like what would you what would you have done different for so because i think like everyone asked the right question for so like, many of our cases and this is true on the podcast and is true in real life is that we get the tissue too late you know we we sort of mess around yeah, with this yeah. blood test and this radiological examination and this non-invasive endoscopic thing or whatever and then it turns out that the person just needs to go out go to the or the whole time and that happens all the time you know, Barry, Barry has said to me many times, like the tissue is the issue. And, and it's true. Like we, we are often just, we, we get the tissue and then a week later we have a diagnosis and we're done. And it, but it took us three months to get that tissue, which is, which is just a waste of everyone's time. Right. We dance around a lot and we try and be clever when actually like the answer is it's literally sitting in the abdomen and not that it's shouldn't be a consideration like well of course like we don't want to do surgery when it's not necessary but surgeons do surgery all the time like it's it's common and before the advent of you know schmancy cts and mrs like laparotomy was a diagnostic tool used frequently it's Mm -hmm. like that shouldn't fall off the list of diagnostic tools and here yeah like there was stuff to sort out because it could have been tb or it could have been as far as we we know metastatic RCC. And that would have been important to know even during the first admission. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it would have mattered to get tissue even then. So, yeah. And, I, and yeah. And now our diagnosis and now our laparotomies are actually laparoscopic. So the, so more minimal invasion than ever, mm-hmm. but, uh, but you know, this is, I think one of the issues when we're involving multiple people, we're relying on their, you know, not only our pretest probabilities, but their pretest probabilities and their concerns. So everybody brings something, a different bias to the, to the table. It'd be interesting, Anthony, maybe you, when, when initially you had, your team wanted a laparoscopy, you, you mentioned that uh, people, that surgeons didn't want to do it because he was too sick or wasted. What, how did you point, put it? I can't remember. Uh, they, they felt that there was going to be a risk of frozen bowel, uh, that uh, going in at that time was, uh, maybe not warranted given that he was quite stable up front and that we had pending investigations uh, okay. that could secure a diagnosis uh, non-invasively. So I think negotiating a system where you're trying to balance invasive diagnostics versus expedited diagnostics, it can be you know remarkably difficult to kind of, you know, I don't I knew very early on that I'm not surgical and in my in my inclination. So I have a lot of ignorance when it comes to, uh, the complications that they run into uh, when they choose to tell them to theater. And so it might have been diagnostically indicated uh, up front, but I don't know how the full depth of their decision making for someone who has, uh, you know, he had a prior history of post-surgical ileus uh, from his, uh, renal, uh, from his uh, renal transplant. I think that they felt just give it time for your usual uh, workup to return positive. And he declared himself within that, that time span. There is yeah, wisdom, I, like I on the one hand, the, to that. Like, yeah, I, I think let you're right. Start, solve themselves sometimes. Like things work themselves out. If he gets better, then he didn't need the surgery thing. Like you get away with not doing the surgery. But I also wonder, like, well, if he had come in with a lower bowel obstruction or some something, you know, more surgical, if he had been for whatever reason admitted to a surgical unit, I think he probably would have gotten surgery. Or like that would be the tools at their disposal. They would be more aggressive in their investigation and trying to sort him out and fix him so that they can safely discharge him home. Whereas when you're a consulting service, like you have kind of the luxury of like, eh, we'll, we'll follow peripherally and we'll uh, see what you guys decide to do. So I wonder about that too. So I, I think the other thing is if I were the surgeon and had to make the decision and maybe my concerns are, okay, yeah, we'll get the diagnosis, but now I'm going to leave him with an ileostomy and, or I'm afraid that uh, I mean, I don't know what the surgeons are thinking, and we didn't really have to do this because he had TB, so I really don't want to operate. I mean, I, I don't know if that was their thought process because it 
just seemed to scream, this is all happening in the peritoneal cavity. Why not do something? But maybe that's what- If you'll allow me just 10 seconds of Stefan being a jerk. But, you know, I think we should also take it easy with calling it the operating theater. It's an operating room, okay? This is where they work. It's yeah. just a room. They go in there, they cut some things, they scrub out, and they, they, they get out of there. So, so this idea that it's a theater, that there's some performance going on in there, no. It's just where they work. So let's not sort of deify the operating theater. It's just a room. Let's take it easy. So if we need surgery, call the surgeon and make them go to the OR. I, I call it the bedside theater when uh, <laughs> when I watch you do physical exam on people. Yeah. When we're, when we're ready to call what I do bedside theater, then I'm happy for to call them operating theater. But let's, <laughs> let's, let's be honest. I work in a room and so do they. <laughs> I'm unhappy right. to call it bedside theater. Anthony, Anthony, can you? <laughs> Thank you, yeah. Anthony. That was really a, wow. Well, did they treat him? Did you treat him? He, so nah. unfortunately, <laughs> to, 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 to your point, he, so he ended up with an, uh, an ileostomy and he had a very large output um, ileostomy that was quite difficult to control. So he had a fairly bad uh, ATN afterwards. He did get some tamoxifen as well as some prednisone. Yeah, and he's on chronic loperamide. And my understanding is he's actually still doing A-OK. Oh, oh wow. And he left hospital, obviously. That's Yeah, that's that's correct. Yeah. Okay. Well, wow. Anthony, thank you so much. That was a really, that was a wild case. Another wild ride. I'm, yeah. I'm glad you guys thanks, enjoyed man. it. Or maybe you didn't. Thank you, Anthony. Really that was great. All right, everyone. Thanks so much for uh, listening. And we'll uh, catch you hey, all next can, time. Can I finish with one quick salutation to our friends in Indonesia? You may. <laughs> Salamat Tingal Teman. That uh, that'll, that'll mean uh, something to them. So uh, don't worry about it. I sure hope so. Thanks, thanks for everybody. everyone who's listening. We we really do appreciate it. I I actually have the email here. So if anyone wants to get in touch, you can email us at foundationmorningreport at gmail dot com. Foundationmorningreport at gmail dot com. Thanks, Annie. All right. Thanks, everyone. Annie. Take care. Bye. Bye.